Good morning. Y'all, as Todd said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you uh, again. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm keenly aware of my coffee breath, which I had forgotten about for the past two years. So if anyone has a piece of gum after the service, that'd be great. Uh, I think we'd all be benefited from that. But I am excited to be with you again as we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians entitled Power and Weakness. Uh, And this morning we'll be looking at the first nine verses of chapter 8. Our custom here at Christ Central, if you're able, is to stand in reverence for God's word. So would you please stand with me as we read God's word. 2 Corinthians 8. Verses 1 through 9. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But... As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would allow me to get out of the way so that your word can come into our hearts, impact our lives, and transform us as we encounter you, the living God. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I realize not all of you can see this from where you're sitting, but in my hand, I'm holding a needle. Uh, If you've ever seen the needle before. I assume most of you have. At the top of the needle, which I know you can't see, there's a tiny hole. This morning, I want to begin with a question. It's not my question. I'm borrowing it. But the question is, does anyone think that a camel can fit through this tiny hole? A real-life adult camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Our scripture this morning is about a topic that Jesus claims is as difficult for you and me to embrace as it is for a camel to pass through the eye 
of a needle. The topic is generosity. And our text this morning is about giving our financial resources to others. Somebody needs to lock the doors before people start slipping out the back. Before you panic, I promise you there will be no special offering taken up after the service. Not going to ask you to make a pledge or commit to supporting some cause. The invitation is for you and for me to sit under Paul's teaching and to be open to what God has in store for us in this very important area of our lives. What's interesting about our text is that although it's about giving, the practice of giving one's money away is only referred to one time. Get this, it's not even a command, but it's a testimony of giving. It's not the word give that's repeated over and over in our text, but rather it's the Greek word charis, grace. Five times Paul uses this word grace in these nine verses, which means first big takeaway of the day that although our text is ultimately about giving, in order to understand the call to give, we must first understand the gift of grace. Say that again. What Paul makes plain in 2 Corinthians 8 is that in order to understand the call to give, we must first understand the gift of grace. Three points this morning. Giving is motivated by grace. Giving is the evidence of grace. And giving is the embodiment of grace. Giving is motivated by grace. I was reminded once again this past week as I was on vacation with my family that a necessary part of parenting is asking your children to do things that they don't want to do. It happens all the time. I rarely get through a single day without asking my children to do something that they don't want to do. And when I do it, more often than not, my request is followed by the word why. Why? Which makes sense because none of us want to do something hard or difficult or uncomfortable unless there's some sort of rationale behind it. It doesn't make any sense to do something harder, comfortable, uh, excuse me, hard, difficult, or uncomfortable unless it's really worth it, unless there's some sort of reward or benefit that, that outweighs the discomfort. Church giving is hard, difficult, and uncomfortable. Therefore, when God asks us to give, it makes sense that we would ask him, why God? Why should we? Now, the answer that I normally give to my children when they ask why is, is because I said so. And for some reason, that rarely motivates them to action. Now, God is, is most entitled to answer us that way, is he not? When we ask why God, he has every right to say, because I am God and because I said so. But what our text reveals is that that's not how God answers our questioning. He doesn't double down on the fact that he's God and therefore obedience is fitting and necessary. But instead, he seeks to motivate us in a different way. He motivates us not by duty, but by grace. A little context is helpful here. The church in Jerusalem is struggling financially. A lot of reasons for this. One of them certainly being that Jerusalem, this Jewish hub, was a very hard place to be a Christian. Numbers at worship were likely not near as good in Jerusalem as they were in Corinth. 
Not only that, but Jerusalem was not a very affluent city like Corinth. Daniel mentioned back in week one that that Corinth was this booming industrial and entrepreneurial town, a lot like Durham. It's kind of hard not to make money in Corinth, but that was not true in Jerusalem. Most people in Jerusalem were barely getting by, and therefore Paul could have just put the facts before the Corinthian church. He could have said, you, church in Corinth, you have far more wealth than you need. Therefore, because the Jerusalem church does not have enough, it would be right and fair that you give some of your extra to them. And that probably would have produced a dutiful response. It might have worked, but not in the way that Paul was hoping. April 15th is rapidly approaching. By show of hands, how many of you enjoy paying taxes? Anyone? Okay. We don't enjoy paying taxes, but it's the law. It's something that we do every year out of duty. But that doesn't mean you have to like it, does it? I've never heard anyone say, I gave this really generous donation to the IRS and I cannot wait to see how the IRS utilizes that money for the good of society. This is why Paul refuses to call the church in Corinth to give as a duty or obligation because duty-fueled giving isn't fun. It's not fun at all. But Paul is after a different type of giving here, a joy-filled giving. How does he get there? Look at verse 1. Instead of making a demand, Paul tells a story. Don't miss this, church. Paul's story has to do with giving, but ultimately it's about something else entirely. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Did you hear it? To motivate the Corinthians to give, Paul shares a story of God's grace. The punchline of his story is that there was, there was so much of God's grace being experienced and enjoyed in Macedonia that, that giving just happened. Paul is saying that this little church in Macedonia got so gripped by God's grace that, that, that as a result of that experience, almost subconsciously and on some level uncontrollably, the church just began to give. Almost like when a doctor whacks your knee with a hammer. When, when healthy, your leg kicks out. Paul is highlighting how when grace enters our lives, our instinctive response is to give. What the text reveals is that grace-motivated giving takes a very different shape than duty-motivated giving. Look again at verse 5. This is... Not as we expected, Paul says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, grace giving has a mediator. It has God right smack dab in the middle of it. Because the grace that is received comes from God. Therefore, it makes sense when we receive that grace from God that we want to give back ultimately to him. Which is why Paul says in verse 5 that the Macedonians gave their resources first to the Lord, who in turn called them to give to another. That's such an important generosity principle, isn't it? Grace-motivated giving always has God in the middle of it. You should take that home with you. Grace-motivated giving has God in the center. 
Last thing I want to say about grace as a motivator is that our text reveals that grace motivates far better than duty, doesn't it? When I get a bill from the IRS, not once have I ever given above and beyond what is asked of me. Not a penny more. I always give only what is required of me and nothing else. Yet look at this crazy, over-the-top giving of the Macedonians. It looks like a typo. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Is that not the most backward sentence you have ever read? The church is struggling. Poverty like we cannot fathom. Not, I can't afford Starbucks this week, but not sure if I'm going to eat today kind of poverty. Severe affliction, too. It's not just poverty, but the church in Macedonia was being violently oppressed, persecuted for their faith. I think most of us would agree that those circumstances would produce extreme sadness and a very close eye on one's finances. We've got to watch and make sure that, that we don't lose anything, that we're counting every penny, not wasting a dime. And yet Paul says that the affliction and poverty of the Macedonians produced in them an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. That's crazy. So crazy that Paul didn't want to accept their gift because he knew how this extreme generosity might impact their day-to-day lives, that it was going to hurt. And yet, verse 4, Paul says that the Macedonians begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Did you hear that? The Macedonians and not Paul did the begging. Begging not to get, but to give. What the text reveals is that grace, it doesn't just motivate the act of giving, but it makes giving a delight. A delight that causes us not just to give, but to give in abundance. Which brings us to our second point. Not only is giving motivated by grace, but it's also the evidence of grace. It's here we have to be so careful not to get the cart before the horse. The, the giant misstep that we must be ever mindful of is to think that because of our generosity that God gives us grace. And yet what the scriptures make plain time and time again is that God's grace always comes first. Paul makes this clear in Titus chapter 2. He says, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That's the foundation And then Paul goes on to explain the impact that grace has upon us. Verse 12, this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's God's grace that motivates our godliness, not our godliness that motivates God's grace. The order really matters, doesn't it? Now, at the same time, what Paul is saying here is still hard to hear. The question then is, how do we know if God's grace is at work in our hearts? Think about it this way. I would say that I've been pretty conservative around COVID, tried to be safe and submit to the guidance of the CDC, not being risky or or reckless. However, When I got a phone call a few months ago that there was a ticket available for me to go to the college football national championship, (laughs) did I turn it down? Absolutely not. Were there 75,000 people packed in tight quarters with almost no masks? There definitely were. 
So then that begs the question, am I really conservative around COVID? Well, yes, but only until something that I care about more conflicts with my COVID conservatism. And the point is that our behavior, not what we say, most reveals where our heart is. And in particular, our behavior with money tends to be the most telling about what our heart is for. Jesus says it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our spending tends to reveal what we value most. It's because money has a way of getting entwined with our souls. No other heart idol gets near the amount of of tension in the scriptures as money. That's because God knows how easy it is for money to grab hold of our hearts. I recently read that Americans spend 50% of our time thinking about money, about how to get it and how to spend it. Now, I have no idea how you would prove that statistic, but I think it's probably true of my heart. Our hearts and our wallets are very much connected, which is why Paul alerts the Corinthians to be concerned if the grace of God is not having an impact on their pocketbooks. Look at verse 7. Paul points out some really admirable aspects of the Corinthians' character, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love. These are the fruits of God's grace that Paul has observed in the Corinthians' lives, and yet for some reason Paul has observed that one grace, the grace of giving, is surprisingly absent. And this is concerning because Paul knows that authentic salvation necessarily changes one's orientation to wealth. Salvation necessarily changes one's orientation to wealth. There's no greater picture of this than the story of Zacchaeus. You might be familiar with it. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which meant that he had some very shady financial tactics, that he preyed upon the poor in a way that resulted in him being exponentially wealthy. Think of someone who owns one of those payday loan stores. This is the kind of shady tactics that's going on. And Luke tells this story of Jesus going to dinner at Zacchaeus' house and something strange happened at that dinner, something that resulted in Zacchaeus coming out of that dinner and immediately giving half of his wealth to the poor. Not only that, promising to pay back four times what he stole to those whom he had cheated. And we don't know exactly what happened at that dinner party, but I can tell you what didn't happen. We know for a fact that Jesus didn't go in there and say, Zacchaeus, you jerk. You are the worst human being on the planet, and you better give it all back or I am going to make you pay. We know that because that's not how Jesus ever approaches people who are struggling with idol worship. We don't know exactly what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, but we know what the result of their interaction was. Verse 9, Jesus says that today salvation has come to this house. What happened to Zacchaeus? Well, he received God's grace. And then the radical generosity was proof that God's grace had come into his life. Church, what do your finances look like? If somebody would look where your money went in 2021... Would they see the evidence of God's grace in your life? Grace manifesting itself 
and generosity. I think the scary thing that Paul is saying here is that we can have profound faith, godly speech, immense knowledge of God, earnestness to serve God and love for others, and yet if generosity is absent, then the truth is we really need God's grace that much more. I think the reality that we need God's grace more should be the takeaway here. Don't think about this as a binary question that either God's grace is impacting your finances or it isn't, but rather be willing to examine how God's grace could impact your finances even more. Which brings us to the third and final point, giving is the embodiment of grace. There are certain things in life that are simply too difficult to be taught through words, but rather must be observed to be understood like tying your shoes, for example. You can't read a book about tying your shoes and then just jump right in and start doing it. You need someone to show you, to guide your hands, to correct your mistakes along the way. Giving is one of those things that we need to observe. We need our hands guided along the way. Thankfully, God has not left us without a guide in this area. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. God doesn't, he doesn't just call us to be generous, but rather he comes down to earth and lives out generosity in the most profound way possible. Right in front of us, Jesus, the wealthiest of all, laid down all of his riches so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus is the embodiment of grace, of giving with no strings attached, expecting nothing in return, all for the good of the one who receives the gift, all for the good of you and me. It's through his gracious giving that we in turn learn how to give. Like learning to tie our shoes, Jesus is guiding our hands, instructing us, as we go. It's all about grace. Our giving is motivated by God's grace. It is the evidence of God's grace. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that same grace. I want to conclude again by looking at the needle. Jesus was the one who used this needle as a metaphor for rich people and giving. And his quote was, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person like you and me to enter the kingdom of God. To which the disciples responded, who then can be saved, Jesus? How? Which I think is how we feel, right? Who can be generous, Jesus, we ask? And Jesus' answer is key. He looked at the disciples and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, All things are possible. Brothers and sisters, does money have a hold on you? Me too. Does the thought of letting some of it go, of giving it away, terrify you at times? Me too. Does it seem impossible for you to become a more generous person? Me too. Jesus said it himself, it is impossible. We don't possess the strength to overcome the idols of our hearts. But God says when we cry out for his strength, he will do the work for us. 
One of my favorite quotes of all times is from Thomas Chalmers. He says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Meaning that the only way to overcome a heart idol like money is to encounter something even more worthy of our affection. And when we do that, that greater thing expels the old heart idol and replaces it with itself. That's the gospel. When we sit in God's grace, the unfathomable, unfathomable generosity of Jesus Christ is the thing that will expel the heart idol of money, of riches, of stuff. It will be the thing that will loose our grip on earthly things and cause us to grab hold of Christ instead. Church, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess, especially in this place and in this time, in America 2022, we are obsessed, addicted to stuff, money, wealth, prosperity, These are things that we love, that are near and dear to our hearts. Father, we confess we don't have the ability, the strength to loose our heart's grip on these things. And so, Father, we come to you. We sit in your grace and we allow the beauty of the gospel to be more beautiful than the things that we love on this earth. Father, help us. As we experience your grace more and more, will we let go of the things of this world and grab tighter to you and your love? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.